Welcome. You're about to listen to a teaching of the Foursquare Gospel Church, VGC District. At Foursquare, we believe in the transformation of communities through the multiplication of disciples, leaders, churches, and movements. May your hearts be blessed praise and transformed as you listen. Praise, praise the Lord. Amen. Good evening, brethren. It's indeed another great day the Lord has made, and we shall be glad and rejoice in it. I'd like to welcome you all to today's program, which is one of the series of activities lined up to celebrate our family month, which is the month of May, uh, as is the practice on a yearly basis. And today we'll be discussing a very relevant and practical issue that confronts many households in the form of domestic abuse. Uh, without much ado, I would like to introduce the panelists that we have put together today. We have a, an assemblage of very experienced and quality people on the panel that will discuss domestic abuse and try to give us some learning points and see how we can learn from it and apply it to our situations if it's applicable and also help others as the case may be. To my immediate right is uh, Pastor Mrs. Bernice Aliu. Thank you, can you make it louder? Let's appreciate her. And uh, my immediate left, uh, to my immediate left is uh, Sister Chidi Ichaba. You're welcome, madam. And on the farthest left is my brother, Brother Tunde Olatunju. You're welcome. So indeed, uh, my own name is Ni Adebayo. Uh, I'll be the moderator tonight. Uh, and also I'll be taking some role that also makes me to play dual role, which is as a moderator and also as a panelist. I'll chip in some you know, conversational topics as we go along. I think it's important for us to try to set the context. You know, for our family Monday, biblical reference is Psalm 128 verse, verses six, uh, one to six. And I write to, like to read that so that we can set the context for today. Verse one says, blessed are all who fear the Lord, who walk in obedience to him. You will eat the fruit of your labor, blessings and prosperity will be yours. Your wife will be like a fruitful vine within your house, amen. Your children will be like olive shoots around your table. Yes, this will be the blessing for the man who fears the Lord. And that's just verse four that I read. And if you go further to verse five and verse six, the Bible goes further to talk about that the man who fears the Lord will see his children's children and that he will live to see the prosperity of the land in which he lives. The Bible talks about Jerusalem. But for us, we will live to see the prosperity of Nigeria in the mighty name of Jesus. Indeed, all the days of our lives. It would seem, therefore, that fearing the Lord will bring untold blessings to the man and his household. But many a people may not be able to live in full realization of this because of certain situations, which include incidents such as domestic abuse. Because when there is domestic abuse, there's no peace in that home. So the peace the Lord has promised may not be forthcoming. And as well as the fact that even if the peace is there, 
and the blessings are there, the feeling of blessedness may elude such people because when you're stressed and when you're battered or when you're bruised and when you're emotionally unstable, even if you're blessed, you will not feel it. And I pray that will not be our portion in the mighty name of Jesus. The World Health Organization says that one in every three women at one point or the other in their lives will experience domestic abuse. That's a staggering number. That's the three one third percent. You might say maybe these are non-Christians, but as you know, recently in Nigeria, there was a fatal case that we all know about that involved a Christian family. So it is therefore possible to believe what lifeway.com, which is a Christian website that is based in America, says that in church every Sunday, you're going to find many women who are sitting next to their abuser, who is also the father of their children and also their husband. So today, we're going to be addressing such issues so that we will not have women sitting in the church next to abusers or men sitting in the church next to their abusers. And our prayer is that indeed this program today will be impactful. The Lord will use it to open our eyes so that we will all be able to know what to do, how to help people, how to help ourselves, and how to avoid it if it's not applicable to you, because it's not something that happens to everybody all the time. So without much ado, I would like us to go straight into the topic. And uh, one of the things that is important is for us to all be on the same page to understand what domestic abuse means. What is domestic abuse? And I think to do justice to this, to set the tone, will be Pastor Benis, I'll just be calling on now to try to define the term so that we understand what we're talking about. Over to you, man. Thank you so much. Um, just like Brani said, you know, marital abuse or domestic abuse or what I would say spouse abuse, because it could be both male or female. So, you know, I want to read out a few definitions here. You know, marital abuse, is the misuse of power and control within a marriage. The power can come from the man or the woman. When we misuse that power or the control we have over our partner, it's an attempt to coerce or control one's spouse through emotional or physical means. Most men will use physical means Women might use emotional means if we attempt to coerce or control. It's also seen as a subtle verbal attack, the violation of dignity with an attempt to intimidate or control one's partner. So these are areas where we'll say there's domestic abuse. In summary, it's just an attempt of one partner to control or to take to have power over the other with the intention of pleasing yourself. And there's so many ways that people try to do that. It could be verbal, it could be emotional, it could be physical. Thank you. Thank you very much, madam. I think you know um, the transition from the definition to the different forms, I think is actually very uh, elucidating. Uh, what I would like to do is to call on Sister Chidi to try to do more justice to the issue of the different forms and presentations and uh, 
uh, ways in which we can notice and sense abuse? And what do we do about each of the cases? Over to you, ma'am. Thank you, Bronnie. Yeah, the abuse, domestic abuse can come in different forms. Uh, like Pastor Benis has already said, it could be physical, but it, just, it goes beyond that. At times, it can be emotional. When, you know, somebody keeps saying something or doing something to affect your psychology, to make you, to denigrate you, the person might not have touched you, but he has already, you know, brought you down, like, you know, to demean you, either by the what, he, you know, you do something, for instance, you do 10 things, one is not good, the person hinges on that one that is not good, in other words, to make you feel you are a nobody. That's an emotional abuse. And then there is also, it could come in form of verbal abuse. There are some people, when they talk to you, their tongue can cut, right? In fact, you begin to wonder if you're a human being because of the word the person has said, you know, they lash out with their tongue and all. That's a form of verbal abuse. There's also um, financial abuse. It come in form of finances. You are in a relationship with your husband or your wife and then the decision as to what happens to the money is just taken by one person. You know, maybe it's the breadwinner, maybe, you know, it's like, well, whatever I give you, you take. But, you know, as to what happens and all. And to some extent, you know, some so do it that if, even if the woman bring or the man brings his own money, the, the, other, the abuser will take it and be giving them whatever, you know, suits it, imagination. If you're in a relationship, what, how you people manage your money should be the decision of the two people. So that's a form of financial abuse, if it's not done that way. Another form of abuse is sexual abuse. For instance, a husband and a wife, you are not to deny each other, that's what the Bible says. And if you deliberately use this as a tool, to you know, either um, deny the person and they all try to get an edge over that person. That's an abuse. And also, rape can happen even in a matrimonial bed. It should be something consensual. So once it's not, it's sexual abuse. And a, lot, a whole lot of other things. And then when we talk of domestic, we know maybe we'll come to that later. It's not just the husband and the wife that are there. There are the children, the house help, the domestic servants. There are also some forms of abuse that can happen to them. So those are some, there are a whole lot of others, but those are a few that I can just mention now. Thank you very much, Sister Chidi. Um, I like the later part of uh, your presentation, and that's what will take me to uh, Brother Olagunju. Now, when we talk about domestic abuse, the mind usually goes to the man and his wife. Uh, but as Sister Chidi said, it goes beyond just the two of them. There are other members of the household, the children, uh, domestic staff, sometimes extended relatives, maybe cousins or nieces and nephews, and perhaps, who knows, maybe friends who are just visiting. Now, what sort of uh, abuse can one say will relate to people? Or are these people also, can they be subject to abuse? And what form of what forms of abuse can we see with children? Can we see with domestic staff? Can we see with maybe other people living in the household? And how can we as individuals uh, avoid that? 
And more importantly, what can the victim do? Usually because the voices of such people are not as big. If you're a child, you're a domestic staff. Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, very quickly, I would like to read from Ephesians chapter 6, verse 4. Uh, New Living Translation says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to hunger by the way you treat them. I'd rather bring them up with the discipline and instruction that comes from the Lord. Uh, my emphasis is on the word, by the way you treat them. Uh, the United Nations defined domestic abuse as a pattern of behavior. So that's very instructive. It means that uh, if I do something once, it might not make for an abuse, but when it becomes a pattern of behavior, and you know, New Living, New Living Translation says, by the way you treat them. So how do we make children feel? Uh, in the dispensation and times that we are in, we all know that our children are much more aware about their rights, even as individuals. Uh, the level of self-awareness that, that we have with children now is not what it used to be before. And so it's important as parents to understand that uh, you can be abusing your child and not know. And what the Bible said is that uh, a translation used the word, do not exasperate your children. So that consciousness of respecting their individuality is very crucial for us as parents. Uh, something happened to me this evening before coming down here. So I picked my children and I dropped them in the house. And my two-year-old uh, messed herself up. So I didn't want the ourselves to clean her up. So I took her to the bathroom and I cleaned her. And she said to me, mommy says nobody should touch my private two-year-old. That's a level of self-awareness that they have now. So she's not even saying, oh, you're my dad. No, she said, mommy says nobody should touch my private. I had to apologize. I said, I know mommy's not around and I don't want Auntie Lydia to take you to, 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 to clean you up. That's the house help. So if we come to the realization that even God expects us to be conscious of how we treat them, then the place of abuse become a thing of, uh, uh, that, that, that we're consciously dealing with, even as parents, uh, because I know that I'm a student of neurolinguistic programming, and part of what we are taught is this. Uh, epigenetics does a lot in how we behave as parents, our education, our exposure, our experience. So that growing up at every slightest pro pro provocation or mistake, what you get is a hard knock on your head. Uh, it does not mean that you have to do it with the generation of children we're raising. Uh, there are better ways to correct. Uh, there are be better ways to guide. And the same applies for our house helps too. Uh, we need to become more conscious that they are first humans before whatever it is they come to do in our houses. And that their house help in our house does not rule out the fact that they are somebody else's daughter. They are somebody else's loved ones. They also want to feel loved. They want to feel respected. So that respect for human dignity is also very important in how we treat these calibers of people. And how, what should we do with them in terms of, yes, even if they don't have a voice, remember that the age we're in is the age of social media. All it takes is for a child to, I was watching something on Twitter a couple of days back, and a father was abusing the mother. The first daughter stood up and he confronted the father he said, before you touch my mother, you're going to beat me first. And one of the daughters was videoing what was happening. And I don't know how it got on Twitter, but that's how it got in social, into social media space. So we also need to be conscious that they have a voice in the real sense of it. Thank you. Thank you, Brad. Very well said. I think one of the things that 
uh, we tend to see that increasingly the incidence of abuse seems to have been on the rise. Uh, but I would like to state, based on what I've seen and my experience growing up, that it's not that the incident has actually increased. I think it's the level of awareness, as Brother Tunde has said. People are getting to know what their rights are. They are learning not to tolerate or just keep quiet when abuse is going on. Uh, he talked about knocking the head of a child. In those days, if you were beaten as a child, if I, so many times you have to go back to your parents to apologize, or if your teacher beat you in school and your parents happen to know when you get home, you're going to get beaten again for disgracing the family, for you to have allowed a situation that would warrant the teacher to have beaten you. But now the, the situation is gradually changing. And because of that, it seems like the incidence is higher. I guess it's just that we're more aware. And I think it's a good thing. So even though it might seem like there's so much noise about it, but without the noise, we're not going to be in a position where we can actually make the changes that we need to make. And I would like to encourage everyone who is listening to me right now or the recorded version to actually speak up and not sit back and tolerate it, condone it, saying that maybe it's your fault, maybe you need to modify your behavior. Once you start to feel that indeed this is abusive, then you need to act. You need to speak up, you need to challenge the person and report if the case is necessary. So I think this will take me to Pastor Bennis again. At what point do we consider an offensive situation abusive? Because as we say, there's no way a man and wife will live together or members of the same household will live in the same house and there won't be offense from time to time. So at one point I will begin to think, okay, I think this is not acceptable, it's abusive. Thank you. Thank you, Brani. Um, normally in any household, whether between husband and wife, parents and children, masters and people who live in the house would always have frictions because sometimes we will not behave in manners that are acceptable. So that is, that is um, necessary, that is, um, that is okay. And the intention is that when that happens, we're supposed to adjust, understand each other, and then come to a compromise how to behave. That will be normal family adjusting. You know, if you have a spouse and you're doing something and it's wrong, you should be able to call your attention to it and then we're supposed to adjust, come to an agreement. Same with our children too. If they do things we don't like, we tell them, we're supposed to understand and we adjust. Same with domestic staff too. We give them instructions they don't obey. With. So that's, that's, that's a normal behavior that happens within family. But when it becomes an abuse, is a situation where one partner, like we are saying, is trying to coerce or control the other partner without letting the other partner have a say, have an opinion, then it becomes an abuse. Same with our children. Our children do things and we, they try to explain to us why they did it. We do not want to listen to them. You just talk to them that don't want to hear that. Before they can even explain anything, you slap their face. That becomes an abuse. Same with the maid. Why did you do this? And he's trying to explain. You don't even have the time. So it becomes an abuse when the other partner does not have the privilege to hear his own opinion. 
you know, to say, this is why I did what I have done. Even if you are going to say, I disagree with you, you should have done this. And then you, began, you begin to exert your own power to control and to make the person feel your opinion does not matter. How you feel does not matter. Then it becomes an abuse. Thank you very much, ma'am. Uh, I think as you were speaking, I think what comes to mind is our requirement as Christians to be very loving, even when we're provoked, when we're offended. So, and I think one of the things you see uh, with people who are abusive, especially of the uh, weaker people like children and uh, domestic staff is to couch it when they try to explain as forms of discipline that we're trying to discipline the people involved. Uh, when you begin to beat or starve a house help, or you're beating your children to the point where they have physical uh, injury and all of that, then you know that's really not discipline. Uh, and I feel that it's important that we remember that even when we want to correct, we need to correct in love. And I think the, the crux of the matter is, at the point when you're doing that act, you consider discipline, which really, when you look at it, is abusive. How are you feeling at that point? Are you feeling like you really, truly love this person you're committing the act against? So it's for you to actually ask yourself and be in a position where your conscience can really, truly tell you what is the truth. And I'm sure, as we know, when we know the truth, the truth is always setting us free. That's what the Bible says. And I pray for as many people as are listening to us, indeed will know the truth concerning this. I know where to draw the line when it comes to discipline versus abuse in the mighty name of Jesus. I think my next question will be to talk about the different stages of abuse. What are those things that we can see to show whether there's a tendency for abuse to start setting in? What different stages of abuse can we observe and how can we avoid escalation from one state to the other? Uh, Sister Chide, I'll call on you for that. Thank you, ma'am. Thank you. Um, well, uh, most times, really, uh, abuses do not start from the violent part of it, right? It's like, um, maybe you say something, it starts subtle, kind of. And for instance, um, it might be a glaring look, and then the next time it progresses to a shout, and then another time it moves on to actual physical, you know, and then it can also be, um, and in some cases, really, it could actually be that the person just starts beating, but you know, there, there's no particular way you can say this is the way it, it happens. But most, in some, most instances, what happens is that the person starts, and if it's not checked, you know, it goes just like anything, you know, it just keeps increasing, increasing. Most times bullies, when they bully you for the first time and you don't do anything about it, they will go ahead and do a worse one. They will go ahead and do another one. You know, so the thing is to try and curtail it right from the beginning. And for when it comes to couples, you know, that is husband and wife, how we can checkmate it is even before we enter the marriage. You know, look out for signs, look out for things, and they are there. You will find it. You know, if you are, if you, you know, what happens is that maybe I'm in love, you know, he will change and all that kind of a thing. And then you go in ahead when you are seeing obvious signs that this person could be abusive in future. And then um, 
So when you see such, just deal with it. And then also when maybe you're already in the marriage and you start seeing the sign, call the person and say, what is happening? This is not right. So you go to avoid it going, you know, don't make excuses. Oh, maybe he has a bad day today. So that's why he's behaving this way. I'm sure he will change. Or maybe uh, uh, I said something must be me that said something that is not good or did want something that is not good. No, even if you did something that is not good, does not justify the other person hitting you or being or denigrating you and all that. So when once you see it, so that it doesn't escalate, draw attention to it. Call the person like, what is happening? Is everything all right? If, it's, if the person is mindful and one, then you find, starts, you know, you guys can communicate and discuss it and all. But where the, uh, the person is not ready to give in to it, then try and escalate it. Don't keep it, don't say until, or else if you leave it, it can snowball into something really, really big. Thank you very much, Sister Chidi. Uh, Tunde, I think I'll take the next question to you. Uh, what do you think are the causes, possible causes of domestic abuse? Uh, what are the factors that promote it? And what can we do to avoid them? Thank, thank you very much, sir. Uh, I would like to start by first talking about the secular abuse. And uh, I know it was the work of Lena Walker, uh, 1979, that talks about secular abuse, tension, incidents, uh, about four of them reconciliation, okay, reconciliation and income calm and reconciliation so the question is this uh and like mommy rightly said before you even got married and an example i want to give is this so you are in a relationship with a young man who as simple as making hair is you say you want to make this style of hair he says no he wants you to do this other style of hair but so you feel you look better in the particular style of hair you want to go for and it's as bad as he becomes hungry, sulking, he's not talking to you. Those are signs already to tell you that this is a control. This is somebody who wants to gain control over you. Because the same way if I want to have a haircut on my hair, I presume that I've been doing this many years before I met you. So I probably know what fits me more. Now, I'm hoping to modification, but I do not think it would be correct for you to say, I must go for this haircut. So why would you also expect as a man that if I ask you to do a particular yes, that you're not doing it, there's a problem. So those are signs that you need to look out for. And for every abuser, the blame is always on an external factor that triggered whatever it is they're doing. And what it suggests to me is that it means that that man is not mature. He's not emotionally matured. And if he's not emotionally matured, he clearly would not be able to undo his stressors. So there are different factors that triggers uh, uh, abuse from an abuser. So what are the factors that promote it? And even on the side of the abused person. So I'll, I'll use another example. I was talking to a friend a couple of days back. But I said to her that you are not working. You are a graduate. You are not handicapped. Or you chose not to work. Uh, yes, you're caring for the home. So all of your financial demands everything lies on the man. Even if he's not, uh, you're already empowering him to be abusive because the implication is this, he has the financial autonomy of the family. So every time he comes to ask her, what are you bringing to the table? And I said jokingly to her, I asked him to hire a nanny to take care of your children. 
and he should start paying, paying you what he would have paid that nanny. Interestingly, you guys are in US, so he knows what it means to hire a nanny in US. Let him start paying you what he would have paid a nanny. But the point I'm making is it's important that on both sides, uh, we should not also encourage tendencies that can empower some abuse, uh, that can empower some abusive tendencies in our spouses. So every both parties should at least know. So even if I am taking care of the children, we need to monetize it. What does it come to in the form of resources? So would you be able to pay? And if you're asking me to do it, then please factor that cost into whatever it is you're doing to know that I am handing this amount into the family, either directly or indirectly. That way you are also helping him to gain consciousness, to also know that he's not doing you a favor, being the one going to work to bring in the resources. So there are a lot of factors that uh, I think from partner to partner, that if we do not have honest conversations with one another, the abuser themselves might not even know that they are being abusive because we have not put, uh, maybe have honest conversation and put adequate structures to ensure that uh, such tendencies are not encouraged or strengthened in the family. And then on the part of uh, other, other reasons that brings about abuse, even at home, uh, maybe the man is working in a place that is not too comfortable or is constantly under threat at work. How do we, what do we do as a family? What kind of conversations do we have? Uh, what kind of relationship do we have? Uh, you know, the Bible says, let love be without dissimulation. Let love be without pretense. So if you say you love the man too, how are you showing support and care for the man? How are you making him not feel Oh, Because again, like we rightly discussed, abuse can come from the woman too. Abuse can come from either parties. So are you showing that level of care to recognize his labor and his hard work uh, rather than how much his mates are doing that he's not doing? Thank you. Thank you very much. I think uh, you raised quite a number of points um, that are very germane. And I think um, it's very important from what you were saying for us to be very deliberate. As we know, uh, the average human being tends to think of um, love in terms of feeling. And I think some of the time these feelings are not constant. When the stressors come, the feelings fly out of the window. Uh, we have to be deliberate about loving people. And love is what you do. It's action. And it has to be deliberate action that despite the situation that you find yourself, you have to do that which is right, which is to be kind, which is to be generous, which should be loving. And in a way, accommodate other people and try to support them when there are moments of weakness and all of that. If we practice this often and we propose to do this, when the stressors come, it's very easy to be resistant, to get into a situation where, where we begin to offend, not to even talk of abusing our partners or members of the house or children, uh, domestic staff or whatever it may be, or whoever it may be. Uh, in the situation that is involved. So it's important for us to be very, very deliberate. I think uh, for each and every one, that is one thing you need to do. Just the same way we go to the gym to be fit physically, you have to find a way to be emotionally fit. And that's practicing you know, mentally what you need to do. Also in the place of prayer, just say, Lord, help me. And then you also deliberately propose to work on it because prayer without works the Bible says he's dead. I would like to switch the uh, narrative a little bit and go 
onto the more spiritual side of things. I would like uh, Pastor Bennett to just walk us through what the Bible says about domestic abuse and how we should treat our partners, our members of our household. Thank you, Mom. Um, thank you. Um, this, um, I'll just try to refer us to three scriptures that teaches us the mind of God when it comes to violence. Um, the first one I'll, uh, is um, Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. Colossians chapter 3, verse 19. It says, husbands, love your wives and do not be harsh with them. Psalm, 100 and, Psalm 11, verse 5 says, The Lord examines the righteous, but the wicked, those who love violence, he hates with a passion. That's Psalm 11, verse 5. Then 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, 1 Peter chapter 3, verse 7 says, Husbands, in the same way, be considerate as you live with your wives and treat them with respect as the weaker verse partner and as heirs with you of the gracious gifts of life so that nothing will hinder your prayers. James chapter 1, 19 to 20. He says, my dear brothers and sisters, Take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, and slow to become angry. Because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God deserves, that God desires. And then I, uh, I'd like to read finally, you know, about emotional or verbal abuse. Proverbs 10, 11. It says, the mouth of the righteous is a fountain of life. But the mouth of the wicked conceals violence. James chapter 1, verse James chapter 1, verse 26. Those who consider themselves righteous and yet do not keep a tight ring on their tongues, deceive themselves, and their religion is worthless. James chapter 3, verse 10. Out of the mouth, same mouth comes praise and cursing. My brothers and sisters, this should not be. So we see in the scriptures that there's no way that God encourages, the word of God encourages violence, whether physical whether emotional or whether verbal, God, you know, does not encourage that. So as, as, as Christians, the word of God is very clear that God will not support, promote, or encourage us in any way, especially when it comes to verbal violence. Some of us will say, I have to express myself. That's how I feel. The Bible does not encourage you to express yourself and say it how you feel. Bible encourages us to speak the truth in love, not how you feel. Thank you. Thank you very much. Uh, thank you very much, uh, Pastor Benis. Uh, that was a very great uh, biblical text that you shared with us. And I like the way you closed 
just trying to emphasize again what the Bible teaches us. And I would like to continue along that line to bring the church into the discourse this evening. What exactly is the role of the church? How can we ensure amongst our congregation, members of the church, that we do not have situations of domestic abuse? And if we observe any, how can we effectively, and I want to under, underline that, how can we effectively deal with it? Over to you, Sister Chidi. Yeah, thank you. Um, as a church, right, we are, our principles are based on the word of God. Just as Pastor Benis read out, God hates violence, he hates abuse. And so the church should do the same. And some of the things the church could do to stop it, to checkmate it is to unequivocally teach against domestic abuse. You know, yeah, it's a church and there's a tendency to say, oh, these things don't happen in churches. They do, and we all know now that they do. So the church should come out and make statements, teach the people what God says about domestic abuse. And then another thing is to be able to support the person who is being abused. Many times people who are abused do not want to come out because they don't want to be stigmatized. They don't want people to begin to say, oh, or maybe they are stripped of all their roles. If they come out and say, this is the problem I'm having. You know, it's like, oh, we are there for where you are not my church. So the church should support them. The Bible talks about the church supporting the poor, the weak, right? So the church should support them. The church should punish anybody, discipline a brother, a sister that is abusing somebody that they get to know. Don't sweep it under the carpet. It doesn't matter who that person is, you know. And then when and somebody is, give, is used as an example, you know, others will learn that, oh, this thing is, cannot be tolerated here. This thing cannot, we don't, we can't take it. Another thing is, you know, to also help both the abused and the abuser, right? There was a place in, uh, in, in Thessalonians, second Thessalonians, that Paul says, yeah, why you discipline the, the brother gate. who has erred, do not do also draw him in so that he, because he's a brother too, or his sister, whoever is involved. So those are some of the roles that the church can play. And then set up places that people who are abused can go. Like our church, we have the comfort center. So if you have a situation, you know, somebody who has been abused can come to the comfort center and, you know, meet with the counselors, they'll be able to help. So these are some of the things, you know, let, let, let it be that people know that this church or our, the church or wherever the church is does not, as you know, uh, accommodate or encourage abuse in any way. There is something they frown at. And then people will be able to come out. And then brethren in the church, because church is not just um, the building, right? It's why it's not the building, it's the human beings inside. When somebody is abused and is coming to say something, meets a fellow sister, meets a fellow brother, and says, this is the situation I am passing through, then what is it? 
it behoves on us as children of God, as members of the church of God, to hold the person's hand, pray with that person. It is not something to gossip about. It is not something to take from one prayer meeting to another. It's something that as, an indi as individuals, hold the person's hand in prayer, find out what is going on. If there are things you can do as individuals, that we can't leave it alone for the leadership of the church. So if there are things individuals in that church can do, if you are the person, the person feels, oh, I, I can trust this person, let me come, let me talk to him or her, then do something. Don't just sit back. Don't just, oh, you have heard a story. It's not gossip. It's something real. So the church, those are some of the ways I think the church can help in this case. Thank you very much for that. And I think you raised quite a number of points. The church must have a working arrangement. Church must get involved and interact with the abused and the perpetrator. The church must comfort the abused. The church must challenge the perpetrator and get him or her to change his or her ways. And in addition to that, the church must also let members know that it is not going to be tolerated. Because indeed, we're supposed to be members of one big family under the banner of love. That is what the church is supposed to do. So I'll move a little bit away from that and we'll come back to the church again. Since we're a church and the church's role is really very big, I think for me this evening, and we'll come back to it. But we'll just detour a little bit and we go into cultural uh, uh, perspectives. Bratunde, uh, I'd like to call on you to handle this. Do you think culture is a contributory factor and to what extent and uh, what cultural practices are out there? Can we unlearn them? What do we do? Thank you. Thank you very much, sir. Uh, I, I think culture really is a big deal. Uh, like I said earlier on, uh, one of the things, in fact, there is a debate that says epigenetics is stronger than genetics. That's nurture being stronger than nature. And what do I mean by that? So we, we've seen men who grow up in environments where if mommy is in the kitchen for six hours, daddy sits in the sitting room reading newspaper, crossing his leg. And then maybe hourly is asking, how long is it taking to get the food ready and what have you on a Saturday morning? I remember that Monday through Friday, everybody went to work. Mommy not exempted. And then Saturday morning, she has resumed her duty in the kitchen. And daddy crosses his leg, waiting for food to be served. Uh, and I love First Peter chapter 3, I think verse 7 that we read. The later, latter part says, it said, treating her as co-heirs. Uh, some translation use the word as equal in Christ. Message translation says as equal in Christ. So if I am treating her as co-heir, uh, I am not meant to lord it over her as a woman. Uh, Ephesians chapter 3 says uh, we should uh, also, uh, wife submit, uh, submit to your husband and the husband should love her as Christ loved the church in that he gave himself up for the church. Uh, we, we need to first understand that there's a, there's, a, there's a need for us to unlearn certain culture and tradition, particularly when we say we are Christians. Uh, the implication is that we are saying we have been translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. So what is the culture of the kingdom that we belong to? Jesus, who is our perfect example, showed us what servant leadership is by washing the feet of the disciples. So he wasn't sitting in the living room waiting for food to be served. He actually went to do the dirty, dirty jobs to clean their legs. And uh, I say this to us. 
uh, with, without due respect, irrespective of who you are, whether a pastor, a deacon, a brother, if when we fall sick, we have to go to doctors to treat our bodies, I do not think that it makes us less spiritual to see therapists. If there are cultural issues that are affecting your disposition in how you are treating your wife or in how you're relating with your husband, there are professionals who the same way the doctor helps to treat your body, they help to treat your mind and your soul. I think that would be my uh, submission, sir. Thank you very much. It's indeed very important to realize when you need professional help uh, and not just resort only to praying and doing nothing about it. Again, it goes back to the prayer without works that I mentioned earlier. Thank you very much for that. If you need professional help, please seek help. It usually will work if you go to the right people, especially professionals who are Christians. I think one of the areas where we touched on briefly earlier, which I would like to talk a bit about, is about how we can prepare young men and women for marriage, especially with the view of them ensuring that they do not go down the path of abusing themselves. Uh, I think today touched on it a little bit uh, earlier when he was talking about daddy watching TV while mommy is in the kitchen. Children learn better by observing us, not what we tell them. And it's very important to set good examples for our children to be sure that it's not just about what we tell them and it's only those moments when we're really being deliberate about interacting with them. When we're passively teaching them, I think that's when they actually learn the most because they're like sponges who just absorb and absorb and absorb. And you'll be surprised when they'll be releasing what they've been absorbing all these days. When it's about relating with spouses, is when they get married that the release will start to happen. And so we need to teach our children about Christian ethics. It's very important, the values and principles of life, of marriage, of a Christian, how to relate to your spouse, how to relate to your children, how to bring children up in the way of the Lord and all of that. And be very deliberate about it. Talk to them about it and also do the right thing. Don't say something and do something else. And let's ensure that all the children and young adults that are looking to get married must go through marriage counseling. In some churches, they take a shortcut approach to it. They just do a couple of sessions and that's it. When I was getting married, we had like three months every weekend, Saturdays for about four hours. And I'm not joking. And they insisted and we had to go. And I think those sessions are still serving me even as I speak. So we must insist and get intending couples to know what is right so that they understand the basis and the foundation of a good home so that they don't go down the path of abuse. Because talk is very cheap. It's very easy for uh, mothers and fathers to tell children what to do. But if you're telling your children to be fair to ladies and all of that, and you are not fair to your wife, they're just going to be you know, looking at you and say, daddy is very unserious. They may not tell you to your face, but you better be sure you're not raising beasts in your home. And I pray that will not be a portion. I think one of the things that is also important for us to bear in mind is that the way we do the children upbringing is something that if we also need help, we can seek help as well. Because some parents, I dare say, may not be as capable. And if you really are having difficulties just knowing what to teach your children, please call for help. And how we treat women, boys and girls, we should treat them in a way that makes them to internalize the idea that indeed they are equals. 
Because when you have the boys watching soccer and then water gets spilled on the floor in the home and you're calling Joy or Nkechi or Iyabo to come and mop the floor, why the boys, Victor and uh, John, they're busy watching TV. If they are closest to the source of the mop, they're closest to where the incidents happen, you're not calling on them and you're calling Iyabo, who is probably even the older person, and everybody is capable of doing this work. You're already setting the tone that there's certain works that is okay for men not to do it when there's a woman around. And those are the things that plant the seed. And I pray that we should just focus and the Lord will enable us. Now we go back to the matter of church. And I would like to give this to Pastor Benis again. And I'm sure she knows why. Now, <laughs> The, the, the Bible teaches us about forgiveness, okay? The Bible is very big on forgiveness, on patience, on long-suffering. Those are things that we teach. Now, Jesus says, if they slap you on one cheek, turn the other. Now, how many times should we be offended before we begin to take offense? Jesus says 70 times seven. That's 490 times. So are we saying that somebody that is abused should not follow those biblical texts or what exactly are we talking about when we're saying the person should stand up the person should say no and all that why can't they turn the other cheek why is it important for them to do something that seems on the apparent basis that is not biblical thank you ma'am. Uh, thank you brani um god is um big on forgiveness because that is even the basis of what has brought us into this fit. Without forgiveness, nobody will be here. And he commands us to do that, you know, to forgive. But when it comes to relationship, we have to understand forgiveness in the way God looks at it. And um, if you remember what God said in Matthew, I think it's 18, talking about if you have an issue with your brother, the Bible says the first thing you should do is to call your brother and tell your brother, we have an issue. If you are not able to solve that, it says then call another person. That's the third party. Talk about it. The person should intervene. If the person is not able to intervene, it says then call the church, a bigger... And if at that point in time, He's, he's not going to listen to the church. The Bible says, then treat him like an unbeliever. It's not different from the way we deal when it comes to matter of abuse in relationship. When you have an abuser, the first thing is not to go shouting outside. It's the first of all, talk to your abuser and say, look, this behavior is not acceptable. This is not right. If he's able to see eye to eye with you and understand it and is able to modify that behavior, then you can both begin to work on it. But if he's at the point where he cannot see it and that behavior is repeated, that's the point where you should call somebody else to moderate it and say, look, we have an issue here. And the person should try to make your abuser understand that this is not acceptable. And if the three of you are able to work with it, it could be a marriage counselor, it could be a very trusted friend, you know, Christian friend that is matured. And if you are not able to go through it, maybe you can go as far as maybe the marriage committee or whatever 
and then even sometimes go to the church. If at that point in time, when you get to that point where this finally breaks down, where the abuse is persistent and is something you cannot bear, if you decide to say, no, I'm not going to take it, it does not exempt you from forgiving your abuser. Because if you do not, then you'd have a problem with yourself too. You are still under obligation to forgive your abuser. Why? Because when Jesus was on the cross, he was abused. But he said, Lord, do what? Forgive them for they don't know what they're doing. But then, forgiving your abuser does not equate to staying in the abuse. They are two different things. Because you can, you can walk away from your abuser, yet you have not forgiven him. You are bitter. Then you are not doing right. So you must forgive. But forgiving your abuser doesn't mean that you continue to take the abuse and stay in the abuse. You can you forgive your abuser, but then you should not say, because I've forgiven him. Because this is one of the things that a lot of women do. Oh, he abused me, he apologized, and I forgive him. And they continue to stay in the abuse. And you know, the, 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 like uh, our brother said, it's a pattern. And this pattern continues. And then you find, like we said, we find a lot of battered people because they continue to endure the abuse and they are there. So forgiveness is, because if you are, if you're being abused and you cannot forgive and you're bitter, you yourself need to work out and somebody needs to help you. Somebody really, really needs to help you because you are going down a road that is not nice. People, some people in that process, they go into mental issues because they are so bitter. Some people, even spiritually, they are no longer okay. So we need to know that you have to, forgiveness is not optional, you have to, but it does not mean staying and being abused. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor Bernice. I think the point Pastor Bernice was trying to touch on is maybe the difference between forgiveness and reconciliation and the input. And I would like to build on that a bit and, and pass it on to Sister Chidi. Now, we know the Bible requires that we forgive. Now, Pastor Bernice mentioned a situation whereby maybe we have unrepentant perpetrator or somebody who seems only to repent only momentarily and then goes back to default mode and all that. And this continues and goes on and goes on. So she's saying that maybe it's just forgiveness. And then you may not need to stay put because we've seen instances where this would lead to death. Then the question is, are we suggesting that the church is encouraging separation or perhaps divorce? Is that what we're saying, ma? Well, um, I wouldn't, I don't think it means that the church is encouraging separation or divorce. The church definitely will not encourage anything that is contrary to the word of God. But also the church um, needs to take some decisions, right? You know, the, the church will, 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 will not watch and the church will also not encourage murder. The church will also not encourage, you know, somebody being battered. And then, so it's a decision. The person that is facing this 
we need to take. But definitely doesn't mean that the church is encouraging separation. The church doesn't encourage people being battered. The Bible is clearly against it. The church doesn't encourage you remaining in a place that you have been um, uh, destroyed, kind of, whether emotionally, whether physically. But the church, you know, we will we, not close their eyes and just watch and then until somebody is killed. That's, that's also contrary to the word of God. So that's what it is. It's not that the church, not at every, you know, anything you say, just move out. No, that the church is not saying that. What the church is saying is that evaluate what you're saying, what is you are going through and see if is it something I can continue staying in that place and still remain a normal human being and still be, be able to uh, not be bitter because if you're so bitter you are, you are doing things contrary to the word of god and you can't remain in an abusive relationship and not be bitter so maybe what you really need to do is to move out so that's what the church will say you know but not that the church is encouraging people to separate or divorce thank you madam uh, indeed two cannot work together except they agree i think that's uh, a punchline from what you have said and I, and I kind of feel, yes, we need to balance it and uh, ensure that while we're preaching forgiveness and reconciliation, there also has to be the two sides have to really agree that they want to be together. Otherwise, there might be some need to begin to look at some other kinds of solution to save somebody's life and prevent uh, serious injury that could uh, hurt somebody on a permanent basis. Thank you very much, Madam, for that. I would like to move on to Tunde. Tunde, um, if you're a guy, and I believe you are, okay? Uh, and this is just asking a rhetorical question. So it's not about you. So you have harmed your friend or your spouse or somebody in your household or you're worried about it, that you might do it, or one of the things you've been doing of late can hurt somebody. How can you stop? What do you think, what advice do you have for people who are in that situation? What steps can they take to begin to address the situation and stop and begin to live a healthy life towards their spouses, towards friends in the family, towards uh, the children, and perhaps uh, domestic staff? Okay, thank, thank you. you very much, sir. Uh, I think I'm going to say it's a multi-pronged approach. Uh, I would not say, I love Romans chapter 12, verse 2. It says, be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. And in trying to look at the root word of that word, renewing your mind, is also the Greek word that says, exchanging your thoughts with the thoughts of God. Uh, I first will start by saying, he has a spiritual approach. And as children of God, we need to come to that point where I said something to someone today. I said at the point where the word of God cannot persuade you against your will, that's pride. So we have to come to that point where the word of God is the standard and the benchmark. But I also do not think that we should leave it there alone because some of these things are like we all know that the human mind does not get born again. It's our spirit that gets regenerated. And so it means that there's a lot of work to be done on such a mind. So if I am struggling, struggling with some abusive tendencies, and like I mentioned earlier on, uh, it doesn't make me less spiritual since seeking the help of a therapist, seeking the help of a counselor, seeking the help of a psychologist, uh, because these are trained professionals in their own right. Uh, and I will give an example. So 
there are certain behavioral patterns, you know, our, our behaviors are driven by our emotions. Uh, if you're unable to identify what emotion is driving a behavioral pattern in the first place, you cannot even do behavioral modification. You can't modify that behavior. So you need the support of a professional who can point you to certain emotions. And some of those emotions are driven by our past experiences. So somebody has been traumatized while growing up, has been abused by every man around her while growing up. She cannot explain why she's aggressive towards men. So yes, as much as she needs to pray, she needs to trust God. Uh, but I think her prayer will be more effective when there is a professional who is able to help her drill down to identify the cause, what is driving that emotion in her. Then she now has the basis even to go and meet God to pray. So Father, Lord, my past experience has been driving these emotions. Heal me from my past. And that's why I said it's a multi-pronged approach. We would approach it from the spiritual side, but you also need to seek the help of a professional. Thank you. Thank you very much. So we shouldn't just gloss over it by praying and holding hands. We should really get somebody who can help uh, drill down. And indeed, the Bible says the earth is the Lord's and its fullness thereof. Indeed, everybody on the face of earth is of the Lord. The professionals are tools in the hand of the Lord, and they may be the ones that will be the solution to the problem, not just the pastor. So pastors, if you're listening as well, learn to also encourage members of the church to seek professional help from the right sources, professional help from people who are capable, who are also spiritually upright so that they don't give the wrong advice. I think that's something that I take from what Tunde has said. Now we have some questions coming through from uh, the Zoom chat room. So I'll read one of them and then we'll get to uh, some other ones as they come through. And I will give this over to Pastor Bennis to try to uh, respond to. Say, so can we talk about spiritual bullying when some leader simply feels that they are more spiritual? And so, you do not have an opinion concerning what is being said or done in the church or not capable of talking. This is a form of oppression in the home. And that's if the person is a spiritual leader who is also the leader in the home, I believe, and also in the church. So do we have bullying and uh, emotional abuse also going on in our churches as run? And if so, what can the church leaders do about this? Thank you. Uh, thank you, Brani. Ideally, we should not have any spiritual bullying in the church. Because if we follow the example of the Lord, he told his disciples, he says, if I, your Lord and master, will wash your feet, I'm show you an example. He made it very clear. He said, I didn't come to be served. I came to serve. So, spiritual leadership in church is service. Is service and must be looked at from that point of view is service. Secondly, realize that the church belongs to all of us. That some people are leaders is just a role they play. And all of us are sons and daughters, joint years. There is no, when it comes to God, there's nobody that somebody is senior to the other. But because there has to be order, that is why we appoint leaders. If not, there, there would have been no need. So there cannot be spiritual bully. Sometimes what 
may seem a spiritual bully. Maybe sometimes when the leader does not put across to the followership his or her vision, and they are not able to see it, he's not able to put it across. So when they are telling him or her do this, and he's sure this is what God is telling him, but he's not able to make them understand and make them see what he's saying, then to look as if he's having his way. And also when followership cannot see the vision of the leader, it will seem as if he's bully. You see, it's just the same thing that happens in a household too. If the man thinks I know where we are going and the woman does not see it and he says that's where we are going to go without having the ability to carry his wife along. Same thing with the wife too. So it's the same thing in church too. So the onus is on leadership, pastor, spiritual leadership. As much as we have heard from God, we know what God is telling us to be able to carry the followership and also for the followership to show a little understanding but there should be no bullying. They should know, they should, I don't think God, I'm sure God does not intend us to bully one another because the Bible says those people are given as gifts to the church. You know, that they're supposed to serve the church, edify the church, help the church. So the issue of bullying should not come in at all. Thank you. Thank you very much, madam. Um, I think, yes, we'll take uh, questions. Uh, after this question that I'm about to ask uh, Sister Chidi, um, when our mind goes to domestic abuse, the first thing that comes to mind, and I think it's biased because we're all biased people, isn't it? Is a man beating his wife without even hearing anything. Oh, there's a domestic abuse in Mr. A's family. The first thing that comes to everybody's mind is that Mr. A must be beating Mrs. A. Okay, but usually that may not be the case. Or it may just be one of the things happening because sometimes you have mutual abuse going on and all of that. So on behalf of the men's folk, how can a man who has a nagging and unforgiving wife handle her situation before it degenerates to the physical one that everybody talks about? What can such a man do, Sister Chile? Thank you. Yeah, um, it's true that abuse is not only from the man to the woman, right? The woman can also become abusive. When we are talking of different types of abuse, we talked about the verbal abuse, you know, where somebody nags and says things that are cutting the heart of the person or demeans the person. So a woman can, you know, be abusing the husband verbally uh, by nagging and not forgiving and all. But uh, in addition to calling the person and talking to that person, right? You know, discuss with it, like what you say, the way you say it, I don't like it. The person who is unforgive, who is not, who doesn't forgive is also in trouble, you know? So see that person also as a victim. And so you need to pray, you that, you know, it is difficult because you are the receiving end, but also see that that woman needs help. And it's, you know, you need to pray for her. You need to, you know, find ways to help her, just like, you know, any other person who is abusing someone. That woman is abusive, so she needs help. She needs to be helped. So um, if you have called her, 
you pray for her, you know, ask God to help her to forgive because she's apart from hurting you, she's hurting herself. And then where it's, you know, she's not able to just escalate it the same way, you know, that you escalate if it's the other way around, you know, to somebody, you know, who might talk to her, who help her, you know, to see why it's not what she's doing, it's not right. And it's just another form of abuse. So you treat it the same way that's been said that, you know, you could treat an abuse, abusive relationship if it comes from the man. Thank you very much. Uh, I think that really helps. Uh, one of the things about, uh, or one of the aspects of emotional abuse, which uh, psychologists have said is very effective, but yet less difficult to make a case about, is when somebody is being ignored or neglected. And I think there's a bit of difference. Neglect is actually something that's inadvertent. It's not deliberate. Maybe because of oversight or the person is not aware of the situation, you can neglect your spouse, you can neglect children, you neglect whoever it is that is subject of that offense. But when you deliberately ignore, it can actually be a very powerful weapon, which goes on in a lot of households. So if you're that type of person who likes to ignore or ask the question, somebody says something that you normally elicit a reaction and you just pretend like you didn't hear and you're just going about your duty like nothing happened. Other than verbal abuse, that can also be very, very effective because usually when you say, okay, you've done something, say, what did I do? I didn't do anything. But not doing something may actually mean doing a whole lot. So we need to also be aware of the fact that ignoring people is not acceptable, especially when a response is actually more fitting. And I think that's important to also put out there. I would like to call on the audience. I think we have a couple of questions and people are interested in asking questions. Okay, Pastor Mentor, please. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. Just a little comment on the issue that can happen in the church. I think it's even more prevalent where church members can abuse their pastor. I know a case where some church council members think they can gag a pastor. Um, and in fact, they're proud of it. They say, we are tough. We are tough council. And they, they silence their pastor, either because the pastor on the payroll or they support the pastor. They actually demean the pastor. That happens. I think we need to talk about it. But the question, I'm not sure we brought it out. It's a case where what is the church, the responsibility of the church when somebody's, if somebody's going to an abusive situation and doesn't want the church to get involved. Because either she's scared that if, if somebody knows the person can kill me or something can happen, like in the past, you know, the, the, the one that trended the, the media, it, was, it said that they, many people knew that lady was going through abuse, but she said nobody should tell, nobody should talk about it until she died. Does the church have a responsibility to enforce involvement if the person being abused said, please don't get involved? Do you get what I mean? Very well, so I think I'll pass that to Pastor Benis for obvious for very obvious reasons. How can we enforce involvement when the abused does not want people to help him or her? Thank you. I think um I'd rather look at the question from a different point of view. 
why does the person not want people to get involved? Because I don't think anybody enjoys abuse. But there are some factors that make people think that they don't want people to get involved when they are being abused. And what, you know, one of it, I mean, it's unfortunate that we have to say that has been the stand of the church in the past. I personally know of two experiences of women that were abused and the reaction of church to them. One of them used to be a singer just like this woman. And immediately she was in an abusive relationship and she stepped out of the relationship. The very first, she already had engagements for the future to sing. And the church started canceling her engagements. That we cannot have somebody like this that's having problem in our home come and stand in our altar. That is one. The second one, the woman was being abused and was taken to church. And the church said that is she had been thoroughly beaten. It was all over her. And she was taken to church. And the church said, hey, go home first. We'll come and meet you at home with your husband. So you see, sometimes that's why they feel if I let people know, it might demean me. My spiritual status will be brought down. I will not get the kind of support I need. Probably being a lead singer, once I say I have a problem, my pastor may say, please step down for now while we are sorting the matter out. Without really have, letting them have understanding. That's why they protect themselves. Why do they do that? Why would they say the church should not get involved? If I step out and I say, okay, I'm being battered and I step out, is the church going to support me? Because I'm going to leave a home. I will not have a place to sleep. I may not have a family that will support me. Will they support me? If my spouse says, now that you want to go leave your children behind, can I face that? There are many issues. It's not that if they enjoy being battered. So that support needs to be there. So before they think and say, I don't want to tell anybody, they have looked at all the circumstances around them and they feel that, no, I will not get a comfortable landing. So what should happen? Like in that case where everybody knew and this woman was saying, don't let anybody know. If maybe the church had been approached and a counselor in church says, come, don't worry. What are your fears? We'll do this, we'll support you, we'll walk the road with you. I'm sure she'll be more comfortable. Those are, those are the issues. And then maybe also when we allow people to know that God is the ultimate, he's your provider, he's your lover, he's your husband. You don't need a man. Or if you are the man too, God can support you. When you look at that situation as if it's all in all, all will come from a lot of counseling and encouraging. Somebody does not get battered and you say, yeah, pack your load, come now. It's not that easy. You may go through a lot of, like my brother said, some therapy over a period of time until the person can put himself together and say, yes, I can make a decision at this point in time, a decision to either stay or to go. Then if he's saying, it means I can assert my rights. I know when to step back 
if this abuse wants to come, I understand what to do. Or I'm strong enough, I know that I can step out and I'll be okay. So I think uh, the, the, as a church, even if the person says, I don't want to, and we know, there are some things we need to do that will make such people comfortable. And you'll find out that they may as well just come out and let the church into their situation. Thank you. Thank you very much, Pastor Benis. I think that's really very helpful. So if I extend, and I know you didn't say that, but this, these are my words. If I extend what you said a little bit, to those of us who are in the church, who are not providing the kind of support or the right framework or environment to encourage people to want to call for help, can we also say we are in an abusive relationship with the person that is a victim, or we are providing grants for abuse to fester and to grow and germinate and become prevalent in the environment? Um, would that be a very appropriate call that I'm making here? So we need to change our ways and ensure that we encourage people to speak up, whether they are members of the church or pastors, even as uh, the uh, pastor mentor said earlier on. So we still have some few questions coming through from the internet. I think there's also a question in the audience. So we try to take them over the course of maybe about the next five minutes. Now, uh, some of the questions, two of them actually overlap. They wanna know how in practical ways can we identify emotional abuse? I think we've discussed it before, but I think the person maybe just wants better explanation. So I would like to give that to Sister Chidi to handle. Uh, and then we take the other questions. Uh, Tunde will take one, the one that comes next. Thank you. Yeah, some of the ways we can know emotional abuse or abuse generally is, you know, when someone keeps doing something that, you know, as if to control you, to denigrate you, like you are not a human being, you, are, you can't take any decision, you can't, you know, to cow you kind of, coerce you into just not being a normal person in a way that hurts you badly. That's, that's an abuse, that's an emotional abuse. That the person is doing it by withholding something or by saying something or being overly critical, whichever way he's doing it even before we get to the beating, you know, by the time it gets to hitting and all that, it has really gone out of hand. But even, you know, little, little things, the way the person glares when he talks to you, maybe you, three people are talking and then you want to talk. And once you talk, it's like, in fact, you have said nothing, you have said rubbish, you know? So those are a few ways you know that, no, something is wrong. Anything that makes you feel less human, that makes you not to be, you know, uh, yourself and that makes you feel no something is wrong here I am being matched on the floor that's an abuse thank you very much and I and I would like maybe to just add some specific examples maybe some other people may be able to relate to it so that we fully understand what we're talking about intimidation for example uh, is a strong uh, form it's a strong tool that can be used to control somebody ridiculing you know making fun of somebody uh, can make you feel less of yourself or harassment, you know, um, or isolating you from friends and family. I think that's actually something that is very common with abusers because they know if people are interacting with you, you're likely going to seek help and they might prop you up and you're able to maybe bring an end to the abuse or at least 
maybe flee or do one thing or the other that the abuser doesn't want. So what they do is actually take you away. I actually know of a family where nobody from the wife's family can visit without the husband approving. And more often than not, he denies the approval. So you can imagine what's going on under that roof. I don't know more than that though, but I know you can't just go and say you're going to see the woman. Not possible, except the man agrees, even if he's not there at home. So that already gives an indication that something is going on under the belly. Now, we have another question before we take one from the audience. And this is about the men. And I think it relates to what uh, Pastor Bennis had said earlier in terms of how we make it happen. See, how do we help men that are being beaten by their wives? Um, uh, Brother John actually talks about a man that the wife is much bigger than him. The woman not only beats the husband, but sits on him, you know, in the presence of the children. And it's like just battering him all the time, anytime they have a problem and they quarrel. So it says men are too embarrassed to seek help because of the shame and the reactions from people. What can they do? I think my answer will be similar to what Pastor Benny said. We need to create an environment whereby indeed people will feel free to want to seek help. So that's one. And when they seek help, how do we treat it? Are we taking it from one prayer meeting to the other? Because, you know, part of the way we Christians gossip indirectly is to say, ah, let's pray for Brother Neo. You know, we understand his wife is beating him. You know, meanwhile, you said it to like 50 people. Of course, they will pray and speak in tongues and all of that. But who knows what they're going to say when they're not speaking in tongues and they're just discussing with their friends. Yeah, there's even a brother in our church. We just had now. Wonders shall never end. Eh? He gets beaten by his wife. We have spent that means praying about him, you know, and we're just praying that the Lord. And you don't know that you're already present in the room. Before you know it, it goes from one person to the other. So let's learn to manage confidentiality. It's very important. And when you have things like this that are not very prevalent, that could be very embarrassing, if the pastor knows or elders in the church, they should just keep it within a small circle. If, I, if possible, just maybe just one or two people and deal with it decisively. But getting people to know about it will mean rumors and, of course, the grapevine will start to become very lively. And that's why people will not seek help. So that's the best way to ensure we encourage men to speak up. And I hope that addresses the question. Now, uh, another question is, how should the church deal with a minister who is abusing his or her spouse and the kids when such a case is discovered? Pastor Benis. <laughs> Thank you. Uh, the minister is also just like any other person, but then the minister is supposed to set example. So he has higher responsibility. I think that minister should be confronted to, like we always say, make your make the abuser accountable. Nobody is above the law because you are a minister, then you are not accountable. You are accountable to God. So the minister should be approached to and spoken to. Why are you abusing your wife? And if he needs help, they should take him aside and go and help him. And if he decides and recognizes this and accepts this and ready to go through counseling, that would be nice. 
if he also says he cannot, he's bigger than them, I don't think he should be, he should be taking care of his church. Because the Bible says a man that cannot rule his household doesn't have a business ruling the church of God. So he will be helped like every other person if he's willing to, because he's also human. If he's willing to be helped, fine. Can he be helped and then he can get out. Of, but if he's arrogant and thinks because he's the pastor, he's above the law, then I think his church should find a better placement for him. Thank you very much, madam. Uh, I think that really deals with it. I know we have a question in the audience. Do we still have that question coming? Okay. After this, uh, you'll be asked to ask the question. So, Tunde, this is for you. How do you deal with a narcissist spouse? Thank you very much, sir. So, I think, um, with, with, with all due respect and no biases, uh, for us as African men, the culture itself sort of supports narcissism. I mean, our upbringing. And that's why when we become Christian, again, it takes me back to what I said earlier on. There needs to be a conscious effort and that deliberate, uh, that intentionality to say, this is what Christ expects of me. Uh, Jesus taught us servant leadership, like I mentioned before. If Christ would wash the feet of the disciples, uh, which... Maybe, thank God, at least I wrote in Bible school now, and from my little understanding of the Jewish tradition, it's almost the basest of work. It's not even just slaves that do washing of feet. It's the basest of slaves that does washing of feet. And if Christ could go to that extent, it means that uh, we should be, even as men, we should be leading from behind. Uh, we should be leaders from behind. And I was also going to say something. At our times, some of those narcissistic tendencies, uh, you don't even know you're being uh, a narcissist. Uh, there is something called uh, Stockholm Syndrome, where the abused person is beginning to be endeared when they've stayed too long. It's a mental health disorder. And that's why even when we're talking about the role of the church, at times the abused person does not even have the strength, not because they, they are not even seeing it as an abused again. Uh, we need structures to be in place where the church can actually step in and hold the abuser accountable, whether somebody comes to report it or not. Uh, I was reading up something, listening to something this evening on my way, and uh, it will interest you to know that uh, this is a bit of a digression, that even under the penal code of Nigeria, the law permits that if someone is trying to kill another person, I can actually intervene. And whatever I do within the context of trying to save that life, whether I have to kill that person, will not be taken as murder. Now, that was a, that's a digression. So I am saying uh, we need to come to that point where the church can, we don't need to wait for the abused person to report. There must be structures in place and channels in place to also empower the church to be able to step in the moment abuse is uh, noted or discovered. So for men who are struggling with narcissistic tendencies, uh, we would approach it spiritually, we would also approach it professionally. Thank you, sir. Thank you very much, Nude. I think you, you spoke very well in that respect. I think one thing I take from that is it's possible to adapt, especially as you talk about Stockholm Syndrome, which basically means you not only tolerate, but it becomes normal. You normalize the abusive behavior. It doesn't even matter anymore and because that's your reality. And that cause for all of us, it behoves us as onlookers, as the support system that the Lord has placed around one another, to always look out 
and be there to support, to support one another so that we can deal with this matter before an abused person normalizes it and cannot even notice anymore. I pray God will help us in Jesus' name. So Sister Buki, we'll call on you to ask your question and then we'll round up after that. Thank you. Thank you so very much for the line of thoughts. Um, my own area is talking about um, some reasons that people stay in abusive relationship. And one of them, I'll talk about two of them, stigmatization and financial dependency. And I have many uh, examples of people that I know that have um, that left the abusive marriages um, and then end up, ended up being single and they are, they are stigmatized. And because again, they are not financially empowered. They are struggling with taking care of the children they brought out of the abusive marriage uh, relationship and then end up marrying again and again. And of course our society frowns as such. So I don't want to be like X, Y, Z. So I rather just manage it and I'm saying it because of my children. And then you just, I mean, they just take that. So how do we help women that we have identified beyond, oh, counseling and all that, maybe talking about the man himself, the abusers uh, need to be taken out and um, maybe reorientated or something. Uh, because most of the time before somebody says, oh, I'm being abused, they say, ah, what did you do? You must have done something wrong. So the problem, the fault is always at the doorstep of the person being abused. So we all have to have a, a change of mind. People have different issues. So we shouldn't just stigmatize everybody. Oh, they cannot hold their home. That's why they've separated. And so people want to die in an abusive relationship. So we need to look at how we help them shelter, number one, uh, feeding or work. Or something. I'm just thinking of what can we do in practical terms? We, oh, leave that abusive marriage. Where does she go? A woman who is, um, uh, who is an orphan already, even if she's not, she's not an orphan, maybe the parents already told her we don't have, uh, we don't have, uh, what, there's a name Yoruba called them. Dale Moshu, don't come and be Dale Moshu in my house. The Igbos say when the woman goes to the uh, marriage, you can't come back home. So they will just stay put. So some of those cultures need to be changed, whether by law or by whatever. And then how do we rehabilitate them? How do we help them move on? Thank you, Thank you very much. I like the passion that Sister Buki spoke with. I think he partly answered the question, but I'll just call on Sister Chidi to see how she can add dimensions to how we deal with such a situation. Thank you. Well, um, it's what should be done is not what um, we can sit here now and articulate everything that can be done about it. Um, it's something that taught, you know, people have to give thoughts to, is it as a church, is it as a society? And I, I tell you like what happened, you know, the, the lady that, the singer that died, you know, it has raised a lot of awareness. People are now speaking out. People are now, you know, stigmatizing people who abuse people, and that's part of it. It's you know, culture evolves, culture moves, right? Something that somebody has 
the culture has been supporting one way or the other, whether deliberately or not deliberately. It's not something that also go in one day. But as a church, as a local church, we have to think, sit back and think, what do we, how do we help people that we have identified or who have come out and they have been abused? But that's still a small segment. It's something, it's a societal thing and it's something that will change gradually. But it's good that, you know, the people are getting to know, people are, you know, are getting, being aware. And, you know, I'm sure as time goes on, you know, things will change, at least, but it will be gradual. Thank you very much. Thank you, Mrs. Achidi. We appreciate you. And thank you, uh, Tunde. Thank you for coming. Thank you for your contributions. Thank you, Pastor Benis. Can you please give the panelists a round of applause? Thank you very much. Thank you for being a very um, cooperative and well-behaved audience. And thank you, those who are online, for the questions and the feeling that you've given us that indeed there are some people online with the questions that came through. That's the kind of thing we like to see. Thank you so, so much. So thank you everybody, God bless. I think we will now take uh, announcements before we say the closing prayer. In terms of announcements, uh, these are programs of the church. Our family month continues. Uh, the, today's event is one of those. Uh, that we have earmarked to celebrate and also to try to admonish one another and try to encourage us to be better behaved in our households. So everyone is encouraged to participate actively by attendance in future events. And one of them is the Sunday school that we normally have after uh, watch the service on Sundays. It starts at about 11 a.m. after the church service. So everybody has a class that fits them, regardless of your status, whether you're single, whether you're married, divorced, separated, whatever your status might be. Even if you're a child, there's a Sunday school class for you. And no matter how long you've been married, if you've been married for 50 years plus, there's a class for you. If you're married for just one month, there's a class for you. So there's something for everybody. 